Welcome to Bad Patient. I'm Robin Donovan. I'm Laura Marker. And we are two non-medical, non-experts taking on reasonably deep dive into this week's health news. And this week's words are bubble boy, hyper, shrinking, and obesity. Bubble boy. (laughs) So, okay, I think that we should do a thing that I've heard on other podcasts where we like tell people what we're going to talk about during the podcast because we have to like tell them so they don't stop listening. This is my understanding of what other people do. You know what I mean? Like they'll be like after the break, of course we don't have any breaks, (laughs) but like, you know what I mean? They're like, we're going to tell you like this triathlon podcast I I listen to. They're like, why should you take a rest week? Like, what sport is the strongest? Da, 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 da. And it does. It keeps me listening because I want to know, like, the answers to all these, like, questions that they raise. So, I mean, I realize that, like, I'm putting you on the spot. And I don't know why I can never tell you any of this in advance. But I was thinking that maybe we should do this. Okay. I I hear what you're saying, Robin. <laughs> and I value and appreciate what you're, well, this what you're is, saying. This is going right to no, I can tell. I'm a little bit frustrated because we legitimately, no exaggeration, just spent the last hour and a half chit-chatting. <laughs> I know. We were supposed and to. And it be- no point came up. <laughs> I wasn't thinking about the podcast. In any of that time. <laughs> and it, you weren't, ah, uh, Robin. Uh, so, so what, what the fuck do you want me? I feel like I've done that. I told you what the words are. So the question the is, words- what the fuck are those words? Yeah, the words don't really tell anyone what the topics are. So, and like, obviously, I don't know because the, the the stories are a surprise to me. So, so we have to like tell people we have to tell people like what questions we're gonna answer. So I'm gonna I'm gonna look at just like the links that you sent, and I'm gonna tell listeners that today we are gonna tell you how a little boy was cured using HIV gene therapy. We are going to tell you why sugar and hyperness is a myth. This is easier than I thought. We are going to tell you why even a little bit of exercise is good for your brain. And we are going to tell you what genetic test can predict your odds for being overweight from the day you are born. Plus, I'm going to give you some information at the very end of the podcast about whether or not you're protected from measles. That was pretty good, I think. <laughs> that went surprisingly well. Yeah. You nailed it. So moving forward, do you not do you not just want words? Do you <laughs> what no. do you want from me, lady? I mean we could just Legitimately, do it like this. Robin. I think Legitimately, I think Robin. you say that an hour and a half. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> yes. I would like to point out that you are right. Everyone, Laura is right. We did actually it might have been almost two I had hours. A- I had a lot to tell you. About I had my to life. hang up. I had a ha- absolutely. I had a lot to catch up uh, on in my life. Lots of things happening in my life. Lots of things happening to people that I used to know. Um, <laughs> congratulations! Woo woo! Uh, oh. Waiting for that invite. Uh, <laughs> Sick burn. Um, Sick burn. All right. I like had a we had to stop talking so I could charge my headphones mm-hmm. so that we could podcast. Mm-hmm. That's how long. We talked, yes. Robin, and at no point in time. I know. Did well, you say? I had a lot to say. I'm going I'm to change things up. Yeah. I had a lot right. to say. All right, listeners. People- just to catch you up, Laura and I have discussed, <laughs> have discussed so far today why probably everyone should get a prenup before they get married. We have talked about 
my many thoughts, <laughs> my many thoughts about dating and extracurricular activities and participating in the extracurricular activities of your significant other and like how that should go and what that should entail. We have talked about, we have talked about the court system and how it's not very efficient. We have talked about my existential <laughs> questions about like life, death, God, my job and where everything is going. Okay. That's not the podcast. That's what we're here to tell you about, but we have been talking. Okay. Are you happy now, Laura? <laughs> Everyone knows now we've been talking for like two hours and then we finally decided to do the podcast. <sighs> Laura, I'm just, I'm just saying it what? is now two hours. It is now two hours after the time that we said it and originally that we were going to podcast. I'm just saying, <laughs> I like, I told you I I'm lame. I don't have anything planned for this evening. But, like, I didn't mean, like, that you could just, like, throw new things at me, at, <laughs> like, live live and in person. I like, really, honestly, I was not keeping it from you in person. I just, like, <laughs> I don't really think about the podcast that much until we're doing it. And then while we're doing it, I'm like, we can make this. We could do a thing. Because. Absolutely. My, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep we'll keep working through this. Um, what is our so first story next week? What? Next week on the podcast, we will be working out uh, logistics of what the fuck we just did. <laughs> uh, so our first story comes from uh, NBC News, and it's babies with bubble boy disease cured using gene therapy developed by St. Jude's. So this is looking at um, the bubble boy disease, which is um, people who have. Um, like an extreme immune compromised system. Mm-hmm. So typically those children die within the first couple of years because they don't have an immune system and they get infection after infection after illness after illness. And so St. Jude's used a gene therapy using um, a virus that causes uh, AIDS, the HIV virus, as a modified way in order to help cure these children using gene therapy. So it is um, severe combined immunodeficiency syndrome or SCIDS. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has about it affects about one in in two hundred thousand newborns, almost exclusively all male. Uh, and it is something that is tested for now, immediately in a newborn's life. But previously, it was uh, a rare disease that would confuse a lot of parents because they wouldn't know what's going on with their kids. So these kids receive the treatment. There's a 10th boy has received the treatment in the study. And uh, so far, so good. They are able to be healthy and happy and participating in um, daycare. Uh, so, you know, that has like germs all around, but mm-hmm. the skids became new, known as Bubble Boy based on a, a documentary from the eighties, I want to say, yeah. about a child who lived in a plastic bubble in order to protect him from, uh, diseases and germs and things. Um, and he okay, passed away you know when he was 12, but. About mm-hmm. Bubble Boy is like, how did they get food and stuff to him? Like, I can imagine, like, bathroom things, because, like, it's easy enough to, like, take, not easy enough, but, like, you can take material out of the bubble, but when you put something into the bubble, if he needs to eat a sandwich, how did they make sure that the sandwich was sterile? I mean, I suppose people with no immune systems also eat, so maybe they have, like, I guess they have food that's sealed. Yeah, I guess it's not that hard. Mm -hmm. It just seems like if you have no immune system, anything, you could get a staph infection from touching... Anything, right? Like, 
Right. So I think that's uh, why he kind of captured the imagination of the public because he was in a documentary. So if you wanted to learn more, I, I would I would tell you to watch the documentary. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Uh-huh. So I don't know how they would feed him, but I, they figured it out because he lived to be 12. So do you uh, think maybe a, like a good happened. diet and exercise could have helped or more, 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 research more research is, is needed. So yeah, I feel more like we've really, we've, we've found the key to all modern ailments, healthy diet, exercise, yeah. sleep. And if all of else fails, we'll do some research. Yeah. More research is needed. Absolutely. So how did this, <laughs> how did they do this? So they're using, um, I don't feel like the article really says I'm, I'm looking at it now. Gene, gene therapy. They removing some of the patient's blood using modified version of HIV and inserting the missing gene and returning the cells through an IV. Before getting their cells back, patients are given a drug to destroy some of their marrow so the modified cells can be have room to grow. So Why didn't they link to the doctors study? Doctors first tried it 20 years ago, um, and it had unintended consequences in which some patients later developed leukemia, which is a, a blood cancer. Yeah, that which makes sense. Given that certainly is an unintended so, consequence. Like, hey, good news, you have an yeah. immune system. Bad news, you definitely have cancer. Yeah. So, um, the new therapy has uh, new has safeguards to lower the risk of that. Mm-hmm. So, it's done on infants, and they are treated at St. Jude's, and so St. Jude's has licensed the the technique to Mustang bio and they're not sure how much it'll cost once it's a, like officially approved treatment, yeah. but okay. Well, they didn't, they're they also didn't hoping that study. this technology could also be used to sickle cell. Okay. Um, yeah, well, uh, I'm not, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do when they don't link to the study. I suppose I could Google it really fast, but I think these types of treatments are an outgrowth of more, or hopefully an out, uh, outcome we'll see more where there's been more research and interest in rare diseases, especially children's rare diseases lately. Like there's been a lot of social media campaigns to get attention for these types of things, which are not as commonly studied uh, for the exact reasons that you would think. Like, did you see that the, the yeah. doctor who pioneered this treatment died before this study was published? Which goes to show you exactly how long some of this stuff takes to get in the pipeline. But yeah, absolutely, um, it's pretty amazing because it. That I, I wonder if it has. See, this is the kind of thing I could tell if there was a link to the study. But I wonder if it has any implications for people whose immune system is wiped out by a bone marrow transplant, for example. Maybe. Like, does it only work for these kids? Hopefully. I, supp- I suppose the gene therapy would be different if it's a different ailment, but it's also Probably, been interesting yeah, to kind sense. of like follow along with all the the weird baby editing types of things. Like, I can't remember what country, but did you see where there was a baby that was made from the DNA of three people? Like, that just happened. And of course, yeah. there was that whole thing in China, mm-hmm. which I I don't feel like we ever heard the end of, like, if that was real or not, or like... To what extent that story was accurate and true. Yeah. 
So, but so okay. Yeah. The reason I'm surprised that there's no link to the story here is because one of the one of the kind of health journalism gold standards is to put in the estimated cost for a potential treatment. It's supposed to be a benchmark that people can use to understand how accessible or how useful the treatment would be. Because if we cure cancer, but it costs one billion dollars per dose, then effectively the treatment is useful to no one at all. Right. So um, this mm-hmm. study actually mentions all the way at the end that doctors were unable to estimate what the cost might be. So meaning that like that to me is a sign that someone and this is Associated Press. So that's pretty high quality usually. But so someone's kind of like someone in the know is like going through said checklist. So I wonder why they didn't bother to link. Although chances are the person writing the story and the person linking in the story is not the same. But it's just weird because, like, one of the external links goes to, like, today.com. So, like, they're not shy about externally linking. So why not link to the study? I think NBC, like, today is a show on NBC. Oh, okay. <laughs> I like how I can, like, talk to you about complicated things and then basic things like today and NBC are affiliated. I'm like, oh, that's surprising. Great. Good to know. Thank you, Laura. What's our next story? Our next story comes from CNN.com, and it's, does sugar make kids hyper? A, that's no. largely a myth. So yes. I post sugar, this on my I sugar. post this on my Facebook every Halloween. No one ever has agreed with me. No one has ever said, oh, I've heard of that. Everyone has always said, you're wrong. I give my kids sugar, and it makes them very hyper. So every year, I try again. Try again next year. Yep. And then you can link to our podcast. Um, <laughs> so it's looking at research that was published in the Journal of JAMA, uh, which concluded that sugar does not have an effect on behavior or cognitive performances of children. However, a small effect of sugar or effects of the sublight cannot be ruled out. So <laughs> what does um, that mean? <laughs> more research is required. Oh, my gosh. So a small percentage of children... With attention deficit hyperactivity disorder may be extra sensitive to sugar. Mm-hmm. Um, but what they're talking about is that for the most time in which we give kids sugar, it's usually around something fun. So like holidays, birthdays, celebrations. Mm-hmm. So there's excitement there. So it's not necessarily that you're having, that they're having sugar. It's that they're like super excited because something fun is also happening as well. Right. So they're hyped up. So, and then it also um, looks at one study from the mid-90s in which uh, researchers gave children a drink that contained a sugar substitute, and they were told that it was a high sugar, the parents were told that it was a high sugar drink, and another group was told the truth, and so the parents of the people that were told that they were having sugar observed their children of being more hyper because of the sugar. So it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy, so. Yep. I can say... For the record, as an aunt, I love giving my niece and nephew sugar and handing them back to uh, (laughs) my sister, their mother. Um, But I feel like that's, like, part of the aunt contract is Mm -hmm. to be super fun like that. So I I think – I know she she hates it, but I don't care. (laughs) Love you. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think that's totally fair and – I also want to point out that um, the okay, there's a lot of things that we think that aren't right, right? Like um, 
like tons and tons of surgery. I shouldn't say tons and tons. There's a substantial number of surgeries for which we don't really have evidence. Sugar doesn't make you hyper necessarily, except for like a small number of kids. But now everyone listening thinks, I have that kid. No, you probably don't. Statistics are against you. Why is statistics such a hard word to say? (laughs) All right. So anyways, what I'm trying to say is the the whole sugar thing, the reason to like decrease sugar in your diet is more like health related and especially cavity related. Although now we know that cavities Mm -hmm. to some extent are caused by the bacteria like that colonized your mouth. And like, so sugar Mm. contributes, but if you have really aggressive bacteria, essentially you're going to get cavities no matter what, which is why like some people have gum disease at like a really young age, like starting in their thirties, even if they have like great oral hygiene and that can have to do with like the bacteria. This I know because I asked a dentist, uh, one of my friends married a pediatric dental surgeon and he's got some great stories. One of the things I learned from him was if I want to get less cavities, I should eat less sugar, like as little sugar as possible, but also that to some extent it's not in my control, which is sad mm-hmm. because I swear I don't even know. I have like eight cavities and I'm so good. Like I'm, I like, I always brush twice a day. I always floss. Okay. It's not about me, but it's like a little bit about me. The other thing, the other thing that we're completely wrong about is the whole like tryptophan makes us tired. That's wrong too. Cause we always say like, there's tryptophan in Turkey and that's why we get so tired and blah, 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 blah. Like, so Turkey specifically has a number of other amino acids which limit the effect of tryptophan. So this idea that like Turkey makes you tired, it's gone. It's gone. So Right. It's because of overeating, right? Yeah. Or Not like sometimes, because. yeah, or like you're eating like a ton of carbs specifically, like that could be a thing. So, I mean, so I think tryptophan on its own could make you drowsy, but like turkey, don't blame the turkey. Sugar, like I have such mixed feelings about, you know, because I love it so much and I think it's probably so bad. It's delicious. It's so good. Yes. The thing is like it's part of never the problem enough. With like eating healthy, yeah, the part of the problem is the sugar is like empty calories. Like that's what's super unhealthy about it from my understanding. So. Yeah, well, on this whole like insulin spikes, like you don't really necessarily want that. But if you're going to eat some sugar, the the good time to eat it is right after a workout because your body handles insulin a little bit better in like the 30 minutes, I believe, after a workout. So, mm-hmm. I mean, don't take our advice. We're not medical experts, but if we were... <laughs> We wouldn't be doing this podcast. We would absolutely <laughs> not be doing this podcast. That's so true. Okay. What is our next story, Laura? So our next story comes from Gizmodo. Even a little bit of exercise can keep your brain from shrinking, study says. So this is looking at for people who are middle-aged and elderly Americans who get regular um, hour of light exercise in their weekly routine have slightly larger brains on average than those who didn't. So, apparently, your brain shrinking is something that you now have to worry about, Robin, when oh. you get when you get older. So. Oh. <laughs> Wait, like, I have to worry about it right now, or I have to worry about it, like, later? Yes. Which yeah. one? Both? Yes. Yes. Oh. Yeah. 
That's harsh. Add, add it to anything. So it's a, it was a new study that was published in JAMA Network Open. Um, and it's looking at exercise, um, that people got who had 158 minutes of moderate to vigorous exercise a week. And that is the recommended, um, amount that, uh, for public health that is often looked at. So looking at those people who got like at least 10,000 steps had, did have a larger brain on oh, average no. than those compares that had only had 5,000 or less. It's about steps because I'm really Spoilers. not good on steps. <sighs> Robin. What? Oh my God, you're like a triathlon athlete. No, I but I don't get the steps. steps. No, I don't. Okay, this is what happens because like I don't get any steps for biking and I don't get any steps for swimming. And then I live like I work from home and uh, spoilers, I'm not living in a McMansion. And and so I almost never get that many steps unless it's a running day, in which case I get a bunch of steps. But it's very stressful because my watch is always telling me to do more steps and I, I want to, but it's kind of not been a priority and it's not even on my goal list for 2019. And you, I know people are always saying that, you know, just do it, just do it. But I'm telling you, I have like 15 other goals that I have to accomplish and I can't, there's like, there's like no room, but maybe in 2020, I could think I, about steps. It's a, it's, it's a goal to possibly be a goal in 2020. Good, good, good. <laughs> uh, you just can't do it all. Because I already, like, I already was, True. like, trying to winnow down my goals to, like, what were the most important because I got some feedback from this, like, professional development group today that maybe, like, it's, like, too ambitious because you want to give yourself, like, a certain margin for success, right? Because if you always fail, then that, like, de-incentivizes you psychologically to want to keep having goals and, like, doing them. And the whole thing is just, like, it's awesome. It's awesome, like, a goal setting. I mean, studies have shown it's, like, super effective. If you want to get something done, you have to have a vision for it. And then you have to have, like, specific, measurable, actionable, like, reasonable, timely steps to get there. Thus, the acronym SMART around SMART goals. But, like, what I'm trying to tell you is that in this moment, I feel, like, 20% stressed by goals. So just, like, this whole thing about <laughs> people who walked – you know, at least 10,000 steps per day on average. I'm just like, just don't even tell me. It just makes me want to eat like six handfuls of Skittles. Oh, there was a picture of Skittles in the last article. That's why I'm thinking about it. That's fair. Skittles are delicious. Although I'm still upset about the green Skittle. I know it's been years. What happened? I'm still upset. <laughs> they switched from uh, lime to green apple. How are you unaware of this? I, what? We're no longer friends. I'm sorry. Wait, so if I buy Skittles... Robin! Are you serious? If I buy Skittles in the red bag, yes. the green is apple now? Yes. I Yeah, I'm not okay with that. My when? God, what was the last time you had Skittles? <laughs> I guess it's been Someone a get while. this woman Skittles stat. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> someone, was, someone in the meeting today was eating Skittles right next to me, and I could – I was totally distracted because I wasn't sure if he, like, went out to, like, a vending machine – and got them or if they were like had been like provided to the group so i kept like trying to like look around everyone and see if there was like a dessert tray that somehow included skittles spoilers there wasn't because you know what hotel dessert trays always include like cookies and brownies and nothing that's not gluten-free okay nothing like on the best possible day they're gonna have like a tiny square of cheesecake that's like 50 percent crust and 50 percent like whatever cheesecake is that i can eat like one bite of like that's my best possible outcome at these places so i thought oh my goodness is there actually candy like am i having dessert uh spoilers no 
No on all fronts. No. There wasn't even the cheesecake. It was Negative like writer. cookies and brownies and stuff. Would it kill the world to like have a gluten-free cookie once in a while? Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> Tell me about this fascinating study. So, so it's looking to, so activity of any kind, including but not limited to steps, can help prevent your brain from shrinking. So I think you're good, Robin. I think, I think your triathlonness counts as moderate exercise. I'm just it's going better. out on a limb. I'm not a yeah. medical professional. Well, I do but think if I, it if would I be was, better if I had more steps. I wouldn't but... be doing this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. It would also be better if I ate healthier and exercised more. So, I mean, goals for 2020. <laughs> I mean, have we reviewed your goals for 2019? No, we have not. All right. Well, just saying. Well, I don't have a, a business group that I go and discuss my goals with. So, guess guess we're stuck stuck doing be- the podcast. <laughs> That's fine. You can one, you can discuss your goals with me, and two, I don't know if you necessarily want to spend two and a half hours in a day discussing goals because I did it today. And what I would like to tell you is it's very tiring, and I do feel like kind of a goal setting expert at this point because I've done this a few times. But it's 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 tiring, okay? And basically, if you want one, if you want one goal hack on any given goal, just make sure that there is a time frame attached to it. I find that that's like the number one thing Mm. that people mess up on the goal is they're just like, I'm going to do this. And if it's usually then there's like no time frame. And if there is a time frame, it's like something that's like not measurable, you know, like your goal Mm -hmm. cannot be Mm -hmm. I'm going to be healthier. You have to say amazing. (laughs) yeah you have to say i'm gonna walk 10 minutes three times a week and i'm gonna track it using my google calendar or whatever um do you know what i think the best line in this in this article is because sometimes i like to pick my favorite sentence (laughs) it's this one it says indeed public health organizations and even the federal government have started to openly plead that people do any amount of exercise even if it's less than what the guidelines suggest (laughs) <laughs> and i just like that <laughs> um yep. and also about to right. <laughs> the point to the point that one of your grad school professors recently made technically this writer is using an anthropomorphism which is when you like it's like giving a human quality to a non-human thing because they're saying that mm-hmm. the, the organization and the government have quote started to openly plead so am i allowed to talk about this it's not going to get you in trouble, right? Absolutely. Okay. No, I don't so, think so. I don't think your professor is listening. Don't, I don't but think, if he is, my point is, my point what is, up, Doc? <laughs> and I don't know. Maybe, I mean, maybe like is APA style saying like no anthropomorphisms? Like maybe they are. But if they're not, my point would be that this has become such a commonly used technique that I, I think that it's come into common usage. Like in the same way that we've started saying that it's okay to say over instead of more than, we can we can like anthropomorphize different things and that is okay because it's being done so commonly and this is like part of the evolution of language. And the reason I think this is because like Gizmodo is this major website and they are doing it. So, and I bet I could find like a bunch of examples of the New York Times doing it. New Yorker, God knows, they're pretty like stiff. On, on the rules. But, you know, I would just like to point out to this professor, this person, all right, that, like, I don't think I necessarily agree. And I know he's just trying to help you, but um, 
as a person who's recently become over-involved in the way that your grad school essays are edited, that is my take. So here's an example for you. All right. I hear what you're saying and I, I understand. Um, I would contend that uh, a dissertation is a slightly more formal language than uh, an article on Gizmodo. So I hear what you're saying and you are correct, but I think he's trying to prepare me for a dissertation, which is a more formal set of uh, writing and a little bit closer to the New Yorker than uh, your, your New York Times, Lucy Goosey, everything's, anything's good. <sighs> the thing that annoys me about academic writing is I agree. <laughs> I, it's just, you. it's not real. <laughs> it's not a practical standard for anything. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I don't understand why academic writing is supposed to be a certain way. Like, I really strongly contend that because academic writing has made things convoluted unnecessarily. Absolutely, but it's academic writing. That's that's kind of its jam. That's that's what it does. <laughs> yeah, it's so silly though because if it's you're if you're an academic institution, like you're an institution of higher education and learning, then you should want to disseminate information as widely as possible. Meaning that the written works that you put out should be as easy to understand as possible, which does not mean you dumb down the con the content. I don't think. I think it should right. mean that you present the content and the ideas in all of their complexity, but in in the simplest possible form so that people have the greatest chance of understanding a complex idea. Like, What good does it do us if they write about an esoteric topic using an esoteric grammatical style? Like that makes no sense. I think part of it is just uh, feeding the beast that, you know, feeding the beast that it is. Yeah. Self-congratulatory, Ivy Tower, yeah, insular. Absolutely, it's does not does not work in the real world. No, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Welcome to higher education. Well, and I think and, and I think like the beautiful thing about academia is that it's trying to push intellectualism, and I love that. I just don't think that the way they go about it like always makes sense. Absolutely, you're absolutely right. Like I'm so like, am I. I, I. Like I totally support them. It's just the way. It's like the execution of this. I think is poor. Yeah. Okay, you ready for our last article? <laughs> I mean, yes, I'm ready to put down <laughs> the fiery torch of grammar. <laughs> You're such an editor. You're adorable. <laughs> so our last story comes from PBS.org, and it's, This genetic test can predict your odds of for obesity from the day you're born. So it's looking at um, a new technique that uh, looks at the genetics that can kind of give us a scorecard I can tell us if we have the potential of being obesity, of, of being obese. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you are obese or that you are overweight. It's just that genetically you might be more inclined to do it. So uh, obesity worldwide has nearly tripled in, in the last four decades. There's a lot of uh, illnesses that are caused by that, and um, it's a top cause of death in the United States. There are a lot of there's a lot of stigmatisms around obesity and uh, people who are overweight. They um, have a lot of discrimination. And for the most part, the reason why a lot of people feel like it's okay to discriminate against obese people is that it's a it's viewed as like a lifestyle choice. And it's and this is saying it might not be. So in order to reduce your chances of being obese, if you have these uh, predetermined um, 
markers in your DNA is would be to um, to eat healthy and exercise. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awful. <laughs> so, uh, so they were looking at genomes. Uh, in batches of people in order to see if their physical traits among their subjects corresponded with particular genetic patterns. Okay. And to clarify what the study was looking at the study and you know, I clicked through the study is not talking just about simply being obese. It's talking about severe obesity, which affects about 8% of the U S population. I just lost it, but um, UK is this it UK? Was a UK okay. study, so probably so, UK. Yeah, so we're not we're not talking about every overweight person. I think they probably took an extreme group because that's where you're more likely to see a genetic link, right? Because it's easy for anyone mm-hmm. to become mm-hmm. slightly overweight, but they're saying, um, gosh, that these people with these genes have like what a thirteen times greater chance of extreme obesity, bariatric surgery, coronary disease, heart failure, and uh, death, unfortunately. So, Mm -hmm. listen to this. Inherited susceptibility, today is like the day of words I cannot pronounce. Inherited susceptibility to obesity (laughs) can, in rare cases, be attributed to to a large effect mutation that perturbs energy homeostasis or fat deposition. So they're saying that like the genes that you have, like there's a, there's a a mutation that influences how fat is distributed through your body. Oh wow, that's intense. But it says that for the vast majority of severely obese people, they don't have the mutation. Right. So yeah. so they're kind of also hypothesizing that. It's not that these people are necessarily not genetically susceptible, but that there may be what they're calling like a cumulative effect of a bunch of variables, each with a modest effect, Mm -hmm. which in case you're wondering is called a polygenic model, meaning like many, like pertaining to many genes versus like mono, monogenic, monogenic, probably monogenic mutation, which would be like, is it one gene? Which is, which should surprise no one, right? Cause as genetic study is progressing, we're finding that it's more and more and more complicated. As always. Absolutely. More research is needed. Absolutely. More research is needed. Eat, eat healthy and exercise. This whoop, is whoop. exciting. And if you, and if you are on PBS and you're reading the story, you can read the whole study in the journal Cell, which I love. Yay. Mm hmm. All right, so what is your current medical fascination? Well, I've been thinking a lot about the measles because I don't think that everyone realizes that just because you're vaccinated, it doesn't mean you're completely protected, especially not as we're seeing a declining herd immunity in our current population, right? So the fewer people are vaccinated, the lower the herd immunity is, and the more likely anyone is to become infected, even if they've been vaccinated. So CNN did a really cool story. And I should have sent you the link, but I didn't. Sorry. I guess I just didn't have enough time during our two-hour pre-podcast recording conversation to get this together. But the story is called, Are You Protected from Measles? It May Depend on When You Were Born. So um, Mm. basically, (laughs) we're good. And (laughs) there's the current recommendation is is a two-dose vaccine 
um, called the MMR, the first dose between 12 and 15 months, the second dose between four and six years. But that guideline was issued in um, 1989. And before that, there was a single dose recommendation that was in place from 1963 until 1988. So actually, wait, I'm not sure that that means... Well, we might have got, we might have been right on the, right on the cusp, Laura. Uh oh. No, I'm good. Are you? I look, I, I, yeah, I'm good. I volunteered at a, at a camp where, um, oh, with medically fragile children. So (laughs) I, I good. They checked it. They verified that you did the two. Yeah. So. So the difference is also figured out a way to get my pediatric health records because I I didn't know how to get that. So oh, my, how, my mommy had to call. <laughs> oh, so you, do you just call whoever was your doctor like way back when? I don't know. My mom did it for me. Oh, man, I love your mom. <laughs> okay, good job. Good job, She's Laura's mom. Best. Good job. Even though she does not listen to the podcast. Okay. Um, which to her credit, I think, I think that's a issue of lack of information rather than choice, but okay. Um, so the deal is basically <laughs> that there's a 4% difference at whether or not, like, at your chance of being protected. So if you had the two doses, you have a 97% chance of being protected. And if you had one dose, it's 93% as effective. So that's still good, but where, where like the rubber meets the road is when herd immunity is going down, like it used to almost not matter, right? Because you weren't going to be exposed. So like 93, 97, we were getting, you know, like who had ever heard of anyone like doing the measles, you know? So, um, yeah yeah so and there's also been some cases where they were saying like health experts were finding that kids were still getting the measles who had supposedly been vaccinated in like a a rate that was higher than would have made sense back when it was more prevalent and one of the reasons they gave was just that like if you line up like a bunch of kids the vaccine's supposed to be refrigerated but say you're doing like 30 kids in a row maybe like the temperature got warm enough to like degrade part of the vaccine like different things like that so that's like pure mm, speculation yeah. so right basically if you were born delivery of of it yeah if you were born before the 60s you may have never been vaccinated although i would have thought i don't know i would have thought that someone would have followed up on that but apparently the cdc is saying most people born before 1957 don't need the vaccine because before vaccines were available, nearly everyone was affected with these illnesses, aka like you got it. And then in 1963, of course, the the two types of the vaccine were introduced, blah, blah, blah. And so then like 1968 is when like a new version came out. So it's kind of an interesting thing. Um, It's also a problem of like, how do you figure out what you got? Well, when doctors used to close their practices, like they didn't maybe have the same like ability to keep records as people do now, right? Like you can't just keep a paper record forever. So in some cases there's like no mm-hmm. chance. So no way to know. So the official recommendation is if you've had two doses, you're all set. If you've had one documented dose and you're not at high risk of exposure, I, of course, what does that even mean now? But like, I suppose your doctor could tell you that is also adequate. But if you are at a high risk of exposure, like, I don't know if you go to Disneyland a lot, Disney World a lot, or if you live in Oregon, so we're definitely good, then, <laughs> or if you work in healthcare, hmm. or you travel internationally, then you might want to check with your doctor. 
So anyway, I really recommend checking out this article. I thought it was well done. Excellent. What's your what's your current event that you feel like we should know about? Because I'm going to just be honest and tell you I've been doing a lot of like fun, fun, fun and not a lot of like, let's read the news. That's fair. Um, I think one of the interesting things I saw from this week is that uh, the uh, Ebola is still outbreaking in um, Africa and different countries there. Even though there's now an effective vaccine, they're having difficulties in the delivery of the vaccine um, and um, preventative like, care. And then there's also a lot of mistrust because yeah. of uh, previous things that have happened. And so... And then there was also, uh, there were attacks from militia, um, groups that attacked different healthcare locations. So like people who had been exposed to Ebola or had died of Ebola weren't properly buried using like the standard techniques. So like that also caused a spike as well. So, mm, okay. um, even though there is a, there was a huge push for a cure or a vaccine or uh, preventative measures and that has been achieved, it still hasn't eradicated the disease itself because of delivery issues, uh, because of remote areas. And then also just kind of, on the ground situation in in those countries. So that is mine. You think more research is needed on that <laughs> or no? Uh better uh better roads are required. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and maybe a better understanding of of cultural issues that contribute to hesitancy because I think sometimes mm-hmm. we associate that with lack of intellect, but in many cases, these are communities with long memories of abuses suffered at the hands of strangers and foreign medical professionals. And so it's not lack of intelligence. It's, it's genuine, genuine concern in many cases. So that is uh, yet yep. another unfortunate thing that white people have perpetuated so on that note laura do you think we've done a good job bad patienting for this week we've nailed it we nailed it (laughs) okay so if you want to send us an email or a voice memo you can reach us at hello at the bad patient.com we're on twitter at the bad patient and i'm done i'm done with the theme song evan schaefer we are thanking you for the last time if you have a problem with that thanks evan you can email us <laughs> until next time we are bad patient